0: on newsstands Thursdays, and on the web at waldo.villagesoup.com. And this is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm your host, Amy Brown. In celebration of Earth Week, today we'll be talking with Peter Neal of the World Ocean Observatory about his new book, The Once and Future Ocean, Notes Towards a New Hydraulic Society. And we'll be taking your calls as well. But first, we're going to kick things off with a short montage of poetry from the Poets Respond to Climate Change event that took place at the Reversing Fall Sanctuary in Brooksville last month. In order, we're going to hear from Margaret Brooks, Mara Vandiver, Mackenzie Tapley, Henry Finch, Hattie Fitzpatrick, Emily Eisenhower, Ed Conte, Brooke Wentworth, and Ann Ferrara.
1: Simply protecting. Storms riddling our lands. Floods and water demanding space. Sun so hot, our mouths run dry. Unable to speak. You send us signs, O Mother Nature, which we ignore. Simple machines following orders. Orders to consume and destroy. Orders to take without giving. Killing your children. Destroying their home. O Mother Nature. Simply protecting your powerful polar bears and your carefree caribou. Simply protecting against the human race.
2: Splashed across a sea of sunrise, painted in gilded skin, there she stands. Blooming eyes lifting upwards, ivory prowess piercing the faded planets, trunk raised to nibble the emerging clouds, or entreat them for one more day. The queen is trapped in a spear maze. The only rain flows from her own vision. I've lost my way, she whispers. I've lost my way, and my child has lost his tusks. Lamenting, the clouds can only send her dreams of swirling sea otters and gambling bears of a quiet horizon and a new sunrise. The temperature is rising. When a helium is put in
0: a balloon, the balloon rises. When CO2 is put in the air, the temperature rises. When the temperature rises, a kid's ice cream melts and falls on the ground, and the kid cries. When the temperature rises, a polar bear's home melts and falls into the ocean and the polar bear dies and when the climate change occurs, storms brew, species go extinct and droughts occur and the air is poisoned. Climate change
1: is occurring and the temperature is rising.
3: The product and the slim constant decay, the product and the wolf leaving the gallery together, the product and the modern life listening to revolution songs alone on headphones at an airport gate, the product and a handful of behind content with one half or the other, the product and the reproductions of this beautiful day when nothing happens, the product and the antler collection, The product and the blame, rotating through the channels on the satellite TV, staring at images (coughs) resulting from another flood. The product and vacation weather, more and more like a greeting card each day. The product and what should be and all the lines drawn onto the calendar. The product with deceitful reason. The product and the civilized, eventually freezing with the elephants. The product and no one. The product and the streaming news, burning cities as the champagne bottles burst, throats cut fluidly, unknown to the product.
2: Zuzu takes my hand in hers. Let's go outside, she says. Her braids are rainbows, and they bounce to the rhythm of her steps. Quick brown legs fly across the lawn. It's wet, she says. I know. Zuzu wakes me up in the morning. Let's climb a tree, she says. Her eyes are hope and I rub the sleep from my eyes as I follow her. She stops at the edge of the porce. The grass is swimming, she says. I know. Zuzu has been quiet all day. Let's catch fireflies, I say. Her face is worry, and she doesn't look up when she speaks. The bush they like is drowning, she says. I know. Zuzu hangs sheets on the windows. I don't want to watch, she says. Her tears are memories, and she wipes them away angrily. Too much water, she says. I know. Zuzu reaches for me. We are together, I say. Her body is an anchor, and we shake as the house breaks free from its foundation. There's only water, she says. I know, Zuzu, but there's nowhere else to go.
4: Oh, giant Chinese salamander. Fate has dealt you a cruel hand. Familiar mountain streams, warmed and tainted. Your stumpy legs and dragging tail aren't suited for land. Unable to escape the toxic environment with which you become acquainted. We should not have pulled you from the waters to make you into a snack. Dirtied your lakes with chemicals and trash. At this point, there's little hope for you to come back. Your existence in general has become baller
5: a polar bear stands on an ice sheet, drifting. He won't survive without the ice flow shifting. He stands curious, apprehensive, worried, afraid, unsure if he will survive the hell man's made. A bird's wings soar high over the ocean. Beneath him, the oil tankers in constant motion. His, he voices his distaste with a sharp, loud call. But no one seems to hear him at all. A dearest force from his home unwilling, so that man may resume his endless drilling. He walks off in anger, in fear, and dismay. How will he manage another day? A tree lies sideways in endless prostration, submissive to the powers of man's deforestation. It lies unnoticed, unmourned, uncared for all day till it is loaded on a truck and hauled away. A human stands, obli- oblivious, noticing at all, that while they rest, animals take the fall. They watch the news, see the damage, the facts. But instead of sympathy or help, they turn their backs.
4: So easy to overlook the shiny faux beauty reflected in the rainbow of an oil spill. To pay little mind to its choking below on thick black clouds, trapped in a melting snow globe of her own doing. A stomach full of bottle caps, harsh rain, freckling susceptible skin, creeping up behind and slowly encircling hot hands around your neck. Panic is being tamped out with frivolities. Pull the wool from your eyes. Light bulbs won't solve everything. Give up your momentary luxuries for a much sweeter outcome. Does a life really need to be obliterated? by suffocating on your poorly discarded saran wrap packaging, formerly encasing your enriched bleached white flour, high fructose corn syrup, red dye 40 soaked snack food that was purchased on a whim for 55 cents at your local convenience store? No, the world is filled with passive spectators, all with front row seats to this grand tipping point. Be a doer and not an observer and outweigh the scale.
1: So I'm going to close with three lines from Wendell Berry. If you don't know the poet Wendell Berry, put him on your list. He's a farmer, and he's a philosopher, and he's a poet. And we know that there are a lot of things that need changing. We also know there are groups all over this entire planet who are committed to making those changes. And so we always leave filled with hope. And here's what Wendell Berry suggests to us. In the dark of the moon, in flying snow, in the dead of winter, war spreading, families dying, the world in danger, I walk the rocky hillside planting clover. So figure out how it is you have to plant clover in the midst of all that's happening. And that was a montage of
0: clips from the Poets Respond to Climate Change event that was held at the Reversing Falls Sanctuary in Brooksville last month, recorded by Matt Murphy. Again, you heard in order Margaret Brooks, Mara Vandiver, Mackenzie Tapley, Henry Finch, Hattie Fitzpatrick, Emily Eisenhower, Ed Conte, Brooke Wentworth, and Ann Ferreira. And this is main Currents on WERU, shifting gears now to the live call-in section of our program. And I think that was a good kickoff for it. Our special guest today for this Earth Week program is Peter Neal. And you're going to recognize his voice, most likely, because he is the host of the weekly short feature, World Ocean Radio. It's aired here on Wednesday mornings at 7.30 for several years now during the Morning main program. And Peter Neal is the founder and director of the World Ocean Observatory. He's joining us today to talk about his new book, The Once and Future Ocean Notes Toward a New Hydraulic Society. Welcome, Peter.
6: Thank you. It is great to be
0: here. Great to have you here.
6: And let's bless the poets because they can bring it down to the simplicity of meaning. That one example of the child Zuzu who didn't want to go out and um, play with the lightning bugs because she already knew that the bush, bush they favorite, was drowning. Yeah. It's a beautiful image. Yeah,
0: that was some really powerful poetry yeah. there. So thank you to all of those poets and to Matt Murphy for recording that. We're going to open the phone lines right from the start here. So at any time, if anyone has any questions for Peter Neal, feel free to give us a call. We'll take the conversation in whatever direction the callers take it in. I have a million and one questions. We probably won't get to nearly all of them, but we'll get to as many as we can and we'll take calls. As many as possible. The number is four six nine oh five hundred. Again, it's four six nine oh five hundred. The book, The Once and Future Ocean, is extraordinarily well researched and documented. There's sixteen pages of references at the end. I went and looked. There's a whole section, and then there's four pages of additional reading. Uh, very informative, thought provoking, and it just made me wonder how long did it take to write that. It just encompasses so many different uh, areas of interest and so much information. Well,
6: you, you, you must remember that it began here, right here in this studio, in a meeting with Matt Murphy and, and WERU when I first came in with the idea of proposing world, world Ocean Radio, which is now heard all over the world. It's translated into six languages. Um, and it provided for me a weekly discipline, a thousand words a week, it's an amazing deadline. You wonder, you wonder how real columnists can actually do it and do it well and consistently. Um, and so there are – when I first put the whole manuscript together, which was a kind of amalgam of a selection of, of the now 385 editions that I've written for, for World Ocean Radio – it was, it was a four hundred thousand word manuscript. Wow. Uh, so much of the process was whittling it down from what's for, from so much to to what is still now three hundred ninety eight pages, a hundred thousand words, um, which is a which is a lo- which is a lot, um, but the the idea is based on the concept on which the world ocean observatory is 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 created, which is that the ocean is an integrated global social system that it's not just the place we go and see at the beach as a place apart and we focus on it conventionally as a, a place for species and habitat, but it has this larger enormous global connection which which has its its natural level it has its um, uh, financial level, it has its transportation level, it has its knowledge level, it has its cultural level, it has political level, it has an economic level. And in fact, all of these things superimposed create a system that unites the world. It connects us. Everyone thinks, well, the ocean separates people, but that's not true. In fact, it's the one thing that has from the very beginning brought us together.
0: Who is the audience for this?
6: Everyone. Everyone is a citizen of the ocean. Um, people ask me this all the time, and I say, look, I, I can't confine my, my, my audience if it's, if it's a decision maker, if it's a, uh, an interested student, if it's a teacher, if it's an activist. All of these people are the—if are the, are, they are investors and, and hedge fund uh, operators, I really don't care because this issue affects them all. That stuff— that differentiates and sometimes uh, separates us and, and and creates conflict between us pales when you start to think about the significance of the ocean and why it matters to our future.
0: And your definition of the ocean is a little bit unique, and that makes it even more holistic in terms of what you're talking about, all these different layers. Do you want to talk about... Sure. Ocean,
6: the ocean, for me, is the full cycle uh, of all the systems of circulation and conveyance that part of the ocean itself, but also that cycle that we all learn in, 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 in our first science class, which is takes the ocean and the water into the air, deposits on the mountaintop, descends through the watersheds and aquifers, comes to the coast, back to the ocean around again. So all of these circles and cycles are at work at any given time. So for me, ocean includes climate, freshwater, food, energy, um, health, security, trade, transportation, governance, cultural traditions, and actually individual recreation. How we? Why do we go to the water? Why do we go to the sea when we need? When we're under stress, when we're looking for solace, when we're looking for peace and harmony, we're looking to vacate the world that is uh, uh, tyrannizing us. And so we go to this place, which has this unique empathetic value. Uh, that touches everyone.
0: The way that you make the connections in this book between starting with the water, well, maybe not starting with the water cycles, but that's a, one of the main premises, uh, and then getting into, as you're saying, the once and future oceans. So looking at, historically, some of the issues. Uh, you're looking at environment. You're looking at commerce. Like you said, you're looking at your transportation, uh, fisheries, all of these different issues. As you're pulling these things together, are you hearing from people who've read the book that they are surprised that the, the connections that you're making in the book? Do you think people underestimate these connections? Oh, ab-
6: absolutely. I to me they're obvious. Actually, I, I sort of am surprised by that, but on the other hand, it's true. It's real. It seems that that we compartmentalize how we how we see things. We 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 come at 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 our knowledge from silos and and specific disciplines. We're focused on those primarily. We actually avoid making connections a lot, and those kinds of disconnections don't necessarily make us whole as 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 good citizens. Even Uh, even in our in the town we live in, or in the nation we're we're part of, or as an international. uh, participant in, 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 in global exchange. So it, 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 this unification idea, uh, when you think about it, is just there. It's not it's, you can't really dispute it. It's just kind of a fact. From the day that the first person left ashore in a boat to go to someplace unknown, we began what we now call globalization. but it, it, it creates a process of exchange of goods, and people, and ideas. And so when you look at it, look at just the trade of where things come from and how they move today, historically today, tomorrow, when you start looking at uh, the shifting uh, exchanges of people, uh, we have boat people all over this world. We have them in the Far East. We have them in the Mediterranean. Uh, we have them in the Caribbean. We have people who essentially are using the sea as a means to... Flee from one place to another, from one tyranny to some new hopeful opportunity. And then finally, the ideas, the acculturation that comes, comes with it. When you start thinking about, let's just take for this station, um, music. When you think about the African music, the impact of Africa on the music of, of our world, it's extraordinary. And what is it? It's a function of exchange from Africa through the vehicle of slavery, involuntary immigration, bringing with them the one cultural thing that could not be taken away from them, and then given to us and shared with us. That's what the ocean represents, that kind of giving and sharing, that generosity of the spirit. And when you come back to the end of the book, I come to this point of reciprocity, And I talk about what the ocean gives us and how that creates a moral imperative for us to give back.
0: That globalization that you're talking about is uh, in the fact that what is done in one place so quickly can affect people in other places is also problematic. You talk about policy decisions and how – in with the fisheries, for instance – one country, one region, one jurisdiction tries to do something to protect a fishery or a resource, and then that isn't uh, taken care of in another place, and the inability to get, you'd need the whole world to basically come together and decide on a plan, agree, at least in principle, in some ways of protecting it, because one place can't, solve the problems
6: well yeah, yes and we're working hard at this uh, we're clumsy at it there's no question about it but when you look at the ocean it is the true commons and so we right. have created a system where after 200 miles it's free for the taking or is it free for the, the sustaining dumping. is it free for the, the, the um, for, for the significance that it has to our future survival and these, these, there are people all over the, all over the wor- world who are trying to grapple with the specifics of these kinds of problems, and and sometimes it seems insurmountable. Then sometimes you find small things where you suddenly realize, well, maybe that's not quite so difficult as it seems. Um, illegal, unregulated fishing, for example. Uh, we have certain nations which are the primary flags of the vessels that are breaking most of the rules in terms of of unlimited taking of of species in the the open ocean. Um, They are owned either by government, those vessels are owned by government, or by a very small group of people around the world. Uh, It's astonishing. I think it's 20 to 25 individuals or individual families who, through a series of flags of convenience and offshore corporations and interlocking directorates and management contracts and all the rest of it are actually responsible for this. They can be outed. Mm -hmm. They can be outed. And in places like the Netherlands, where you have both sides of that equation, believe me, uh, that sort of conversation and sometimes legal proceeding is going on. That is one of the great gifts of communications. Uh, Ian Arbina of the New York Times wrote an astonishing series on, on sort of illegality at sea. A team from the Associated Press yesterday won the, the Pulitzer Prize for a series of articles on slavery, slavery at sea. Slavery and fisheries, These yeah. are all things that the world wouldn't know about them. But when we do hear about them, not only do we give the investigated journalists their prize, but we also understand that that can't happen. And it's vivid. It is astonishingly vivid because it's now visualized. Mm. It's not just words anymore. It's, you can see it right there happening. You can see a, 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 a fisher essentially being abandoned by his captain and left to die. Mm. It's that crude. And that motivates people to say, no, enough of that. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And let's find out who's responsible. Flint, Michigan, perfect example. You have a a premeditated, ideologically driven um, political decision, right? And to change the source of the water for this city. And in that one unthinking act you destroy lives you destroy a city you actually will destroy because of the compensating costs of make of redressing the damage you could destroy the state you will essentially make a huge drain on the federal budget because all of this evolves Immediately. And now we know about it. So today, three bureaucrats are charged for misdemeanors. But the governor's not charged. He made the decision. He appointed the guy. The guy made the decision. Those guys just did what they were told.
0: Let me just uh, remind listeners, you're listening to Maine Currents here on WERU. We're talking to Peter Neal, author of The Once and Future Ocean, Notes Toward a New Hydraulic Society. It's a new book. He is the founder and director of World Ocean Observatory and also the host of World Ocean Radio, a short feature heard Wednesday mornings during Morning Maine here on WERU. And if you have any questions or comments, the number is 469-0500. You can call in at any time. We'll take the conversation in whatever direction it goes in. Again, 469-0500. So uh, what I think you're saying is that by the same mechanism by which an action in one place like Flint, Michigan, can have huge ripple effects, pardon the pun, the other side of that coin is that the way we're connected with media these days can... Also have the local media, I believe, were the first to report on the Flint media, or Flint, Michigan, water crisis. And that also had ripple effects Uh, everywhere.
6: Absolutely. And by the way, there are multiple pebbles dropping all over the world. I mean we're we are now discovering that there are little flints or big flints all over the yeah, world. Yeah. We are fighting water wars for the ownership and the 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 just ec- and equitable distribution of what is the most valuable element on earth. This is lies at the heart of the book. What the book argues is that the old paradigm since the industrial revolution or before is over and that is that we have had unlimited growth uh, in the name of consumption uh, to enable in consumption and it was driven by fossil fuels. And we all, everyone in the world, no one excluded really has had some benefit. Many have had much more benefit than others no question. But now the negative consequences overwhelm the positive benefits and we see it, Everywhere, So we now have to understand that that paradigm is no longer useful and that that system must be put behind us. When you read all of the books about this, this sort of apocalyptic analysis of where we are, you can read the the most liberal people, Naomi Naomi Klein and and, and people like that. You get to the end of the book and you keep saying, um, what's next? And you get to that last chapter and you open it up and there's a kind of, for me, a kind of, well, terrible disappointment because there's no suggestion there as to what to do next. So what I've done is said, well, here's a new paradigm. If it's not the one you want, have a better one. Uh, that's fine. But for, the, for, the, for, for, that, for now, let's look at the new one, which is sustainable uh, uh, managed growth uh, in the name of sustainability and enabled by water. This one thing that every one of us needs in equal amounts every day no matter who we are, where we are, how rich we are, what color we are, where we come from, it doesn't matter two, three, four days without water and we die. Our family dies, our cities die, our associations and churches die, our nations die. That is evident and we have seen it in many many instances and so that underneath all of this is this terrible competition for water which remains unspoken. And what I'm arguing for is that we turn that around and we say okay, we don't need oil. We actually don't need diamonds. We don't need uranium. We don't we don't need gold. We don't need chocolate. What we do need though is water, each and every one of us. And once you agree to that, once you acknowledge that inalienable fact, then things change immediately and authentically. So that the way we start then to value things becomes different. The way we start to organize ourselves becomes different. The way we start to behave becomes different. And those things are not revolutionary changes. They're obvious behaviors. There are obvious things for we could do. We can do, and we can do it now with the existing technology, the existing technology that we have available today. We don't have to wait for some great new invention, some lightning bolt to fly out of the sky that's going to make it all better. No, 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 no. It's our responsibility. It's like many things in our lives. In the end, we can postpone them and deny them, but in the end, we're the only people who can heal them.
0: I want to ask you to read a section uh, starting. On page 39 here, talking about climate change, if you could read a section from the book. Again, this is Peter Neal reading from The Once and Future Ocean Notes Towards a New Hydraulic Society.
6: Uh, The Point of No Return. Every voyage reaches that place where the distance to the new is shorter than the return to the safety and comfort of the old. The Point of No Return. Literally on a ship, it is a function of exhausted supply of food, water, and human energy. Turning back represents failure of resolve and the impossibility of destination. Sailing on is fraught with peril. Those sea monsters drawn by sailing captains in the margins of their charts on which safe ports and known hazards beyond may not all be marked. I submit that we are at that point now, perhaps beyond. If, for example, we were to halt all CO2 and greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere today it would take half a century for the acid base in seawater to return to its historical norm. It would take decades for dead forests, coastal areas, and coral reefs to regenerate to their former state. If we were to cease all fishing for cod, it would take years for those fish to return to their prior bounty. In some instances, it is already too late, these species having passed into extinction. Can I prove this well the published... Publicized observation, research, and experience would argue for it as fact. Scientists have been measuring the changing pH of the ocean for some time now, as well as the consequence on marine life worldwide. Coral reefs, coral reef experts, indicate that some 10% to 30% of the world inventory has been killed or critically corrupted by global warming, dynamite fishing, and development. And indeed, we have stopped fishing for cod, either by moratorium or simply because the supply is just not there. How much more evidence will be needed, example by example, until we are forced to admit that the time for decision has come? Hmm.
0: Do you think that climate change is the biggest uh, threat the oceans face presently?
6: Well, it underlines everything. I mean, it, it, it you know, it's... It, it, I, ha- I always talk about this in, in, in the sense of you know this debate about whether it's real or whether we're responsible for it, whether it's false, whether it would have happened anyway. All of that is sort of irrelevant. Uh, we are we have measurement after measurement, observation uh, about observation about the changes that we're facing, and what you find in our political distress is essentially either an expression of vested interest or fear of change. Those are the two underlying things that have keep, are keeping us from actually going, going, going forward. So I always use Pascal, the French philosopher's wager, about the belief in the, in the existence of God. I don't believe in God. I'm an, I don't believe in the existence. I don't believe it exists, that God exists. On the other hand, what if, what if she does? Maybe I ought to hedge my bets. So I use this all the time. This is the question that I ask the deniers or not. I say, look, what if you're right? Well, we wouldn't have done anything necessarily destructive. But what if you're wrong? We will then have done something incredibly destructive two ways. One, we will have destroyed. And two, we will have lost the the opportunity to survive by changing behaviors. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so... Sea level is changing. Uh, we see it. We can see it in, in our communities. You can see it in a lifetime. I can see it in my lifetime in certain places where places I knew uh, at one time in life are now submerged. They're gone. Or banks on shorelines that have been eroded. That's not just extreme weather. That's a demonstrable, measurable phenomenon. So why don't we do something about it? And we can. Uh, uh, the, the Climate Change Institute up at the University of Maine, extraordinarily good place uh, run by Dr. Paul Majewski. I went to a workshop there, and we had town planners from Stonington and Ellsworth and all these local communities, and we looked at their climate analysis and how it played out on specific places in Maine along the coast. And then we broke out in the afternoon, and we became the planning committee of those towns, hypothetically. And we looked at what could be changed right now that would protect in the future against some kind of damage, inundation, or problem that could be would, would result from these new examples of extreme weather uh, and uh, 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 rain and storm and runoff and all of these things that we're seeing over and over and over again in all these places.
0: In addition to the rising water levels, the other thing that we hear a lot about is the change in the species, the fluctuation in species. We've been hearing for years from local fishermen about different species they're seeing here in the Gulf of Maine that they hadn't seen before. Uh, also, ocean acidification, which is relatively new, something that's being talked about. Can you say a little bit about the impact of and how that works?
6: Well, it's ocean acidification is the great problem. It's the most invisible, and it's the most destructive, and it's the most difficult to fix. Uh, CO2 emissions changes the acid, the acid base, the pH of the ocean. That then begins to essentially affect the water column. Things move. Things don't survive. Things, um, uh, and and that, that, that change descends all the way down the food chain, all the way down to the most microscopic organism on which all the rest of it, including us, must depend. Um, species move offshore species move inshore species are uh, their their habitats uh, seaweed an issue in maine their habitats because of seaweed harvest indiscriminate inappropriate seaweed harvest are upset and ruined so those incubating functions
1: you're talking about places, the industrial rock yeah, harvest. The yeah.
6: well that's that those that that disruption of habitat has a huge huge impact on on Not just the animals themselves, but on the communities and the the, the families who are essentially living uh, as part of the the process that gathers that protein together and provides it to us on the table. At the same time, you have um, these circulation issues. Uh, I was just in the Galapagos, you know, the place where it's supposed to be perfect because all of the nutrients by virtue of the currents uh, over time uh, brought or come together in the Galapagos, and therefore you have this perfect environment for all these animals. Not really true. Uh, They are already seeing a severe decline in many, 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 many species. Why? Because the toxins can be distributed just as fast and efficiently as the nutrients. So here comes the good, but now right along with it, neck and neck comes the bad. And that you can find in the flesh of the fish, and you can find it in the the thinness of the eggs. You can find it in the declining numbers of the animals that have been there historically.
0: Hmm. Again, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Maine Currents on WERU. I'm Amy Brown. My guest today is Peter Neal, author of the new book, The Once and Future Ocean, Notes Toward a New Hydraulic Society. And if you would like to call in with any questions or comments, the number is 469-0500. Again, it's 469-0500. Just a few more questions about sort of the problem end of things before we shift gears into uh, solutions. Population growth, your, your numbers, your predictions about how, if current trends hold, the impact that's going to have on the water cycle are pretty frightening.
6: Well, there are many, many, I mean, first of all, 7 to 9 billion, 11 billion, you, you read it, many, many different numbers. Um, you know, population growth is, is a huge thing that is confronting the world in almost every aspect of its being. Uh, <clears throat> there are only three ways to deal with it, war, pestilence, and discipline. Uh, and, and all of them are troublesome, to say the least. So I have to say, look, I can't solve that problem. I want to look at all the other things that can be done that can concre- increase the productivity of what we already have. So, for example, war, there's only of, of the water on Earth... It's 3% of all the water on Earth is fresh. 2%, two of those percentages, are in the two poles. So 7 billion people today are living on 1% of the water fresh water, of the water fresh, on Earth. Well, we can do better than that. There is a way that we can increase that. We can increase it by conservation, we can increase it by changing our behaviors where we become less water intensive. Uh, we can do it by desalinating wa- salt water, which is already happening. Saudi Arabia is almost 100% salt wa- uh, desalinated Israel water. Israel has
0: huge Israel has too.
6: a huge. Australia, New Zealand, uh, Florida. There's a big new plant in San Diego. San Diego. San Diego. Right. So you're sitting here saying, "Let's get real here." Now, oh, well, you can't do it. Oh, it's going to cause. It's, no, no, no. The technology has been there for years. Why haven't these plants been allowed to go forward? Cheap oil. Oil cheap oil. Now you could say, well, the paradox we have cheap oil now. No, we have cheap oil now because we have so much oil and we've learned how little more of it we need. We can continue to recover from the from the recession. We can build new economies, uh, and we can jump over the this sort of evolutionary strategy evinced by fracking. You know, fracking was going to be the transition to peak oil, so it was going to prolong the ability. And what it did was it created enormous negative impacts, uh, destroying uh, uh, agricultural lands, disrupting communities, um, poisoning that 1% of water. Uh, in the in its in its in its byproduct, which is now seeping into the aquifers and poisoning more water, that water cannot be reclaimed it's been deducted from the one percent. so you sit there and you realize that there are a whole lot of things that we could do differently if we just pushed that old oil paradigm away.
0: desalinization plants raise concerns about the industrialization of water they the um commodification of water, if if that becomes the shining hope for people that will be able to have more of these desalination plants, like in Southern California, they're starting to do that, then... You are reliant on a corporation which presumably is using some kind of energy to desalinate the water. Well, let's
6: talk about the commodification. There's a piece in the book about Mm -hmm. water as an asset class. Believe me, the smart money is already there.
0: And your Citicorp, your quote from the Citicorp executive is really frightening.
6: It is totally frightening. And that's five or six, eight years old where this is a a memorandum to the the insider investors. Uh, you know, Coke and Pepsi make more money from their water business, make more profit from their water business than they do from their soda business. Um, we have corporations, multinational corporations, that like are essentially. Nestle in Southern Nestle Maine. Nestle in Southern Maine, but Nestle is also in Oregon, it's also in Europe, it's also all over the world, consolidating uh, all of its control of these water. Now, in every one of these places, more and more frequently, people are saying, no, enough. And underneath that is something that I talk about in the book, which is essentially the World Water Manif- Manifesto. And the World Water Manifesto says that basically everyone on Earth is entitled to a fundamental quota of water per diem that allows for them to survive. So it's, let's say it's 40 gallons. Those 40 gallons would be for your cooking and your washing and your this, that, and the other thing. And those everybody gets. Okay. Now, if you want to do more, then price it accordingly, change your valuation system, and and if you want to irrigate your golf course, if you want to fill your swimming pool, you pay for it. This brings us to the so-called externalities of water. Um, uh, I say this all the time, when I walk down the, the aisle of my supermarket, I hear a cascade of water. And what is that? It's all the water that's in the processing, all the water's in the packaging. Um, uh, it takes 1.5 million gallons of water to make a Volkswagen. Those things don't actually get necessarily put into the price of the thing because in many cases that water is subsidized. That water can even be free. So the manufacturer doesn't have to calculate it in his sticker price. Well, if we suddenly said, no, we're aware of that. We don't need these products. We can reject something uh, that is water-intensive in its, in, its, in its making. We can change how we package things. We can change how we irrigate and grow things. And you see bits and pieces of this, this shifting all over the United States and, by the way, all over the world. And in some places, like Africa you have this incredible opportunity. We should learn from their, 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 their opportunity, which is they don't have to go back and rebuild the old infrastructure. They can just be beyond, They don't have to build telephone poles because they can go cellular from the get-go. They can go solar from the get-go. They can begin to essentially build a system that is valuable and effective and utilitarian in the 21st century that just leaves all that other stuff behind.
0: I mentioned the uh, memo from the Citicorp person. I don't have that bookmarked. And in case listeners are wondering what I'm talking about, can you just kind of uh, summarize?
6: This was was an internal memo that was distributed to Citicorp um, investors, inside investors. Uh, But I can tell you um, there are, uh, I once saw a list of of companies that had been uh, assembled, invested in by an environmentalist, by the way who uh, saw this coming 20 years ago. And I met him and I saw the list and I went home and uh, I bought a few shares in every company. And none of those companies exist anymore. They've all been purchased at a premium by larger and larger corporations. And it's not just the sources of the water, but it's all the associated technology, the filters and the pumps and the pipes and all of that kind of, of infrastructure support that's required for this to go forward. And so the smart money's there. The dumb money is still in oil.
0: So the Citicorp exec was basically saying that there's not really a right to to water, that it should be commodified in every way possible. Well,
6: that's a predictable attitude by somebody who sits in the heart of Wall Street. That's true. Um, But there are many, many people who don't agree with him. And there are many, many people who are looking at their investment portfolios uh, with new and better sustainability criteria. So they make investments based on social social, social criteria, environmental criteria, uh, uh, political criteria, gender criteria. I mean, we see amazing that some sometimes companies, for whatever reason, are suddenly into the political way world in a way that we never would have thought that would have happened before, where they're actually taking stands on social issues that, that seemed inconceivable until just recently. So I, I find... I find all of this kind of encouraging. I thought this particular gentleman was antediluvian, but it was a wonderful expression of exactly what 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 what, what we confront.
0: One last uh of the many, many different things that are threats to the ocean. One last that I want to t- uh, touch on before we shift gears is the plastics, huh? plastic yeah. uh, And also we were discussing before we went on air about this new report that just came out of Princeton university today. Uh, it actually may have come out earlier, but it's just being circulated widely today about a study that estimate that they found that, Phytoplankton, which is the um, vegetable-based plankton, plankton being things that can move that move around in the ocean just by drift. They don't have their own mobility system. They can move around the globe in just ten years from one place to another. They can basically get from one part of the world's ocean to another part. And uh, this plastisphere, uh, you're talking about the islands of plastics that we've all heard about, have developed. On them have developed their own uh, microorganisms that wouldn't even exist in the ocean, except so you've got another little micro ecology kind of area. Well,
6: think about the Sargasso Sea. Right. The Sargasso Sea is this huge, this is a Sargasso Sea of plastic. That's what that great um, plasticky island in the Pacific is all about. Uh, And yes, uh, the species feed there, species nest there. It becomes a place where birds uh, rest. I mean, it becomes all of this stuff. What is even more terrifying Is that the friction of all that movement of all that plastic all over the world as it floats and rubs up against each other and everything it deteriorates it disintegrates and it becomes these tiny microbeads and microbeads is now an issue that people talk about and it is found microbeads are found in products they're found in toothpaste they're found in uh, cosmetic creams for exfoliating your, your skin They're found in all kinds of products, which then, when they are uh, washed away, go into the water system. And these tiny little beads then become actually, they they become food. Fish eat them. Their bodies and their tissues begin to fill up with this stuff. And they're all little tiny bits of plastic with all of the chemicals that are inherent in plastic in its totality. We have 12 kinds of plastic. We can recycle all of them 100%. Our dump here in Blue Hill takes one. The technology for recycling them is there for the taking. And I've talked to some of the entrepreneurs, and they say, no, the the fact is if we could do this, we could recycle. And if we did recycle every piece of plastic on earth today, we'd never have to make any more plastic again. Who doesn't want that to happen plastic is oil-based it's a part of the old paradigm push it aside no more plastic bags no more microbeads no more plastic packaging
0: hmm. So many other things, directions we could go in here, and we're going to run out of time, so I want to shift gears finally to hope uh, and ask you to read. Uh, again, if you're just joining us, I'm talking to Peter Neal, author of The Once and Future Ocean Notes Toward a New Hydraulic Society. And uh, if I could get you to read what you wrote uh, starting on page 184 about hope.
6: So, is hope enough? What lies beyond hope? Isn't that the fundamental question? What do we do next? How do we apply our optimism and to what end? How do we as individuals, groups, associations, movements focus the force of hope against the oppositional force of irresponsibility and excess, unsustainable consumption, profit at any cost, and delusionary justification for behaviors that even the perpetrators know will not end well? What about the inadvertent victims of such behavior? Those poor and displaced by coastal inundation and rising sea level, those whose livelihood depends on a healthy ocean, those who follow and will need what the ocean provides to survive. Where is their hope? Where is their justice? Thinking about this makes me angry, and that frustration often finds its way into my personal encounters. A friend counseled me recently, Peter, rage is not effective. It is too easily dismissed as shrill, invective, and works against the positive engagement communicated by the quieter language of hopeful belief. But aren't we, as advocates, meant to advance the cause, to plead in favor, to urge by argument, to recommend aggressively and publicly the counter-strategy, to promote specific solutions— to share commitment far and wide, and to reach for a just outcome. Are we not obligated to channel our anger forcefully for the fundamental, indeed revolutionary change required to meet our most hopeful aspirations for the health and the welfare of the ocean, and for all of us who live by and around it? Hope springs eternal, writes the poet. Eternity, no time for that
0: again, that's from the once in Future Ocean notes toward a new Hydraulic Society by Peter Neal. And you preface your chapter on solutions with uh, a section called "Why We Need a New Way of Thinking." Can you say a little bit about the new way of thinking? Well, that it you comes think back it,
6: it comes back to the paradigm. and that that that's the essence. Uh, that's the essence of it. And so this this idea that there are three parts, one is not uh, unlimited growth, but, managed growth uh, not consumption but sustainability not fossil fuels but water and those that new way of thinking as I've argued before changes how we will behave if we can't accept it and translate our acceptance into political will and and action for change it's not going to happen from the from the top down we all know that We've seen it. It's gotten worse. Uh, It may not get better. It might, but who knows. But the way it is happening is from the bottom up, and there are myriad examples of individuals. Uh, We posted a piece the other day on the World Ocean Observatory site about a man who'd cleaned 100 miles of river by himself
0: You also had one that was just posted a few days ago about the public trust doctrine. Do you want to mention that?
6: Well, if you haven't known about the Children's Trust, last week's uh, uh, World Ocean Radio, I think it was this morning, actually, uh, was about this. This is an astonishing thing for me, because while I was writing this book, I kept saying, well, what's the legal justification? How are we going to enforce this idea? Is there any foundation on which we can base this new idea, this theory? Well, guess what? There is this thing called the public trust doctrine. It originates in Roman law, it's in English common law, it's actually expressed in our constitution, which says that natural resources in the United States are owned by the people, and government, as trustee, has the right to... License, the exploitation of those resources, but only in the context of their sustainability for the ensuing generation. Now, this has been used in the Supreme Court decisions that upheld the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the Environmental Protection Agency, but over the last 10 or 15 years, bit by bit, clause by clause, incentive by incentive, um, campaign contribution by campaign contribution... um, that has been taken away so that we, ins- we now are in a position where government has abandoned its role as trustee. If we had a trust fund and we gave it to a person to manage our fund and our person essentially systematically destroyed the value of our asset, what would we do? What recourse would we have? Well, in the public trust doctrine, we have a recourse. In the courts, the Children's Trust, our Children's Trust, is this organization in Portland, Oregon, astonishing group of people, and they have brought suits in all 50 states and in in federal court, essentially suing the government to accept its role as trustee and redress its errors in the management of of our natural portfolio. And the astonishing thing about this is that all of the plaintiffs are under 18 years of age. So you have our children saying enough, thank you. We are not going to stand for something that actually is an inherent right by law, by law. And yet we have allowed it. We've looked the other way. We've taken and made an exception. We've subsidized it. I mean, when you look at the subsidies that have been, public subsidies that go into the oil business in all its manifestations in terms of loopholes and grants for research and development, exceptions of this and and tariffs preferences and all this other stuff that we can do, right? Take a look at the output. And there's a, terrible symmetry between what the public invests in these companies and what those companies pay out to their shareholders. That is an astonishing uh, uh, misappropriation of public value. I think eventually history will show this as a terrible, terrible crime against the people of the United States. (sighs)
0: We have just about three minutes left of the program, and I, I don't know how much of it we'll be able to get through, but I'd like to close by having you read uh, some of your Citizens of the Ocean Pledge. We're looking at page 257, and uh, we'll give the website at the end. People can follow up and actually not only hear the... Uh, uh, archives of your short features, but you also have the transcripts up there. So if people want to learn more about what we were just talking about, the public trust doctrine, that's there. But um, let's, if you don't mind, read a little bit from the Citizens of the Ocean Ledge. Well,
6: people ask me all the time, well, what can I do? What can I do? This is so big. What can I do? Well, here are a few things. Consume at home and in restaurants, seafood clearly labeled as sustainable harvest or raised. Advocate to suppliers, markets, and chefs. The only such project be distributed or service. I am a pain in the tail at our local supermarket proprietor. I am constantly asking him why he cannot put better fish, higher quality, sustainable fish in the fish counter. To refuse plastic containers and to only choose those that can be reused or recycled. To avoid all products using non-biodegradable packaging, styrofoam, and plastic wrap. To conserve, harvest, and recycle fresh water whenever possible at home, at work, at organizations with which I am associated. Turn the tap off. Take a shower. On and off. Rinse. Soap. Rinse. Soap. I, I started calculating The other day, the amount of water by doing these little – I think I saved maybe 20 gallons of water today just myself by making these little adjustments in how I behave. Do my best to reduce dependence on fossil fuels and production of CO2 initiatives. I will endeavor to reduce my personal annual consumption by 25 percent. To adopt alternative technologies, more fuel-efficient hybrids, electric vehicles, solar, wind, whatever possible. These things are not so unaffordable anymore. And you see it more and more and more where people understand. I have solar panels on my house. The payback is pretty amazing. Now, you have to make the investment. That's true. But the fact is it does pay back fairly quickly. Advocate against the use and runoff. We're going to run out of time. We are out of time, unfortunately.
0: But you can read this, and I would leave people wanting more. You can read this in the book, The Once and Future Ocean Notes Toward a New Hydraulic Society by Peter Neal. Thanks again for coming in today. Uh, it's a
6: great pleasure. So, I, love, I love WERU.
0: So many things that we didn't actually get to, but no. uh, but the book is out there if you want to check it out. Well, and the
6: books are available locally at Blue Hill Books. All right. Uh, so patronize your local independent bookstore.
0: Okay. Um, again, the book is The Once in Future Ocean Notes Toward a New Hydraulic Society by Peter Neal. And you can catch his short feature, World Ocean Radio, here on WERU every Wednesday morning uh, during Morning Main at 7.30. They're also archived at the website worldoceanobservatory.org, where there is a ton of information about everything that we've talked about today. We want to thank Matt Murphy for recording the poetry that you heard at the top of the hour today, and also Dennis Howard for rearranging his schedule so that we would have an engineer this afternoon so that we could do this program I'm Amy Brown. Join us here every Wednesday afternoon at 4 for Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. Next month, we're going to be picking up where we left off in March with plans to do elections-oriented call-in programs at least twice a month on Maine Currents. The dates that we have planned in May are the 11th and the 25th. So we'll be talking about the elections on those dates. Uh, Stay tuned for Democracy Now! is coming up next, and then jazz straight ahead here on your community radio station, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Thanks for listening.
1: WERU is made possible by the generous support of our listeners. Thank you.
3: Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill,
4: and streaming live at WERU.org. Support for WERU comes from Maine Farmland Trust, a member-supported nonprofit organization focused on reviving the working landscape and securing a future for farming in Maine. More information on protecting farmland and supporting farmers at org. Support for WERU comes from our listeners. And from Easterly Wine of Belfast, Maine, an
7: independent enterprise that supports free speech, democracy, and independent media. You're tuned in to Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and 99.9 Bangor. Here's a quick look at the National Weather Service forecast for the greater Bangor, mid-coast, and Downeast regions. Tonight will be mostly clear, lows 35, winds out of the northwest at 5 to 10 miles per hour. A sunny day for Thursday, high 65 to 70, winds out of the west at 10 to 15. Thursday night looks mostly clear, then becoming partly cloudy late. Overnight lows 45, westerly winds at 5 to 15 miles per hour. Friday, mostly cloudy. There's a chance of showers in the afternoon. Highs 60 to 65 with winds from the south at 5 to 10 miles per hour. Saturday, partly to mostly sunny. Highs 55 to 58. And Sunday, mostly sunny in the morning, then becoming partly sunny. Highs 48 to 52. In the marine forecast for the Penobscot Bay Area, tonight winds out of the west at 5 to 10 knots, seas 1 to 2 feet in the evening, and then 1 foot or less. Thursday, winds out of the west at 5 to 10 knots, becoming southwesterly at 5 to 15 in the afternoon, sees 1 to 2 feet. Thursday night across the waters, winds out of the west at 5 to 10 knots, sees 1 to 2 feet in the evening, and then one foot or less. This is Community Radio WERU-FM. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! Support for WERU comes from the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. A nonprofit organization building sustainable communities through
3: sustainable agriculture.